0: As you know, we've been um, moving through the book of Ephesians this fall. And this morning I've asked Dominic, who many of you know, uh, to bring the message and and to teach us from Ephesians 3. Um, Just a quick introduction in case you don't know Dom. Dom and I were in seminary together. Uh, He's a big part of the reason we're in Vermont today, Uh, he and his family. Uh, Dom is uh, skilled at many things. He was an engineer in a former life. He's a father. Uh, He is working uh, on a home here in the Jericho area, and he is someone who deeply loves the the scripture and God's word. Uh, In particular, he spent quite a bit of time in the book of Ephesians, and uh, and is a a help to me when I run into a question, I often come to Dom with that. So I'm excited to hear what he has to teach us this morning, and I just want to offer a, a brief prayer for him. Jesus, I thank you for the power of your word, Thank you for the power of your spirit to bring that word to life and to apply it and animate it within our hearts and minds. Just pray that you would speak through, Dom. Pray that you would open our hearts um, to hear and receive precisely what your spirit desires this church body to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning.
1: So, most of you guys know that we've been working through the book of Ephesians, and I've been given the passage at the beginning of chapter 3, and I'm really, really excited to preach this passage in particular. I feel like it's one of those passages that, that often gets kind of overlooked or glossed over or kind of skimmed, because the stuff that comes immediately before it in chapter 2 is, is it's amazing stuff about Jew and Gentile being brought together you know, in the one body of Christ, what Christ has accomplished on the cross to, to bring these two peoples together. And then Paul is... He, he does kind of sort of repeat some of that stuff in this passage, and then he moves on to this prayer, which is just amazing from fourteen on, from verses 14 on. And so as a result of that, the amazing stuff before, the repetition of that stuff, and then the prayer that comes immediately after, it can be kind of easy to sort of skip over the material that we have here today. But there, when you dig in a little bit deeper is amazing, amazing stuff here. And so I'm really excited to dig into some of that with you guys. So before I get started, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this great privilege and gift of being your people. And thank you for the great privilege and gift of being able to read your word. Thank you for the great privilege and gift that your word gives us as it gives us glimpses into your mysterious will that had been hidden for ages and how you brought that about in Christ. Thank you that we get to be a part of it. I pray, Lord, that as I preach these words, that your spirit would be among us, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So before we get into the details, I think it would be helpful to give an overview of kind of where we're going. I often do this. And the simplest overview of this passage of of verses 1 through 13, I think can be boiled down to the verse at the very beginning and the verse at the very end, where Paul says, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, ask you not to lose heart in my tribulation on your behalf. I think this whole passage in its simplest, simplest form is that request, is that encouragement to them. I'm asking you not to be discouraged on behalf of the things that I'm suffering for you. So Paul doesn't want them to be discouraged at the suffering that he's enduring for them, but why would he say that? Why is he making this request? Well, I would suggest that it's because his suffering is actually a participation in the gospel and in the power of God. So as we'll see in more detail in just a minute, I see this passage structured in a certain way. It's a kind of chiasm where it works its way into a central statement and then back out again in in a parallel form. And at the kind of center of this chiasm is Paul's statement here. He says, I became a servant of the gospel in keeping with the gift of the grace of God given to me which itself was in keeping with the working of his power. So again, Paul doesn't want them to be discouraged because of his suffering on their account because serving God's gospel plan was a gift given to him and it was in keeping with the working of God's power. God's power is at work here in what's happening to Paul. So what does that involve then? What does that look like for Paul and his ministry specifically? Well, that's what Paul is going to devote most of the material of this whole passage describing, okay? And he shows us that in two parallel passages that are within the outer frame and kind of surround that central statement. So this is Paul, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the will of God to his holy saints in Las Vegas, (laughs) with the colors here, Um, don't be intimidated by that. What I'm trying to do here, and we'll, get, we'll walk through all of this, but these are my attempt to show the parallels in this passage, to kind of highlight the structure and, and how Paul is going to describe this amazing gift that he's been given, which involves the imprisonment that he's enduring. So while we'll get into this in more detail shortly, Paul explains that he has a kind of responsibility of making administrative arrangements. We'll get to that in more detail. And, and these arrangements that he's responsible for are an extension of God's own arrangements, okay, which pertained to this mystery of God's will that had been hidden for ages past. Paul's administrative role here involves making that mystery known, okay, as the sermon is titled, especially the aspects of it that have to do with the incorporation of the Gentiles. But through this work of proclamation, okay, as Paul speaks this message, as he makes this mystery known, he actually participates in bringing it about. He actually is part of God's ordering and arranging of this grand plan of his that that he's had and intended for, for all time. And so Paul gets to participate both in making known and in bringing about the mystery of God's will, and as we'll see, not just to people, but to the principalities and the powers themselves. So that's, that's the big picture here, and we're going to walk this through this now in, in more detail. So first, let's look back at the basic outer statement that Paul is made, making, the kind of skeletal form of this whole passage. And Paul again describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he talks about how he'd become a servant of the gospel, which was in keeping with the gift of the grace of God, which itself was in keeping with the working of God's power. And then finally he asks them not to lose heart on his tribulation on their behalf. So what I see here in this skeletal form is the theme that we see coming up over and over and over again in Paul, okay? The theme of God's power working through weakness, God's power working through suffering. The world is upside down. We often hear... um, The expression of of God's kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. But in reality, it's the world that's upside-down, right? God's kingdom is what is right-side-up. So the world looks at God's wisdom, and it sees foolishness. The world looks at God's strength, and it sees weakness. But Jesus, in his example of self-giving love, of self-emptying, of though being in the form of God emptying himself and taking on the form of a slave, Jesus shows us the world turned right side up again. He shows us that it's not about um, self-assertion and and, and self-glorification and taking power for oneself, but rather emptying oneself out of love for the sake of the other. That's the world turned right side up again. It shows us God's true wisdom and power. And the more that I read Paul, the more that I see this theme everywhere in his writing. You may remember several sermons ago that Dave pointed out how Paul patterns the people of God after the example of Jesus at the end of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2. There we saw Christ dead, but then raised and seated in the heavenly places, and then immediately following this, Paul tells us how God applied the same power to us by, though we were dead in our transgressions, co-raising us with Christ and co seating us with Christ in the heavenly places. So the people of God are patterned after this pattern of Jesus, this example of Jesus. Well, the same thing goes for Paul's ministry. So in a similar way, Paul's vision of the world has been completely transformed by what Christ has done. And he conceives of his ministry now as following the same pattern of suffering, self-emptying, as the way that God's power will be worked out in his ministry, as the way that God's power will be worked out in the world. So Paul is imprisoned because of his gospel work. And in the eyes of the world, that would look like defeat, right? That's how Caesar defeats his enemies. But not for Paul. Okay, that kind of weakness is precisely where God's power is found for Paul. So Paul is a prisoner of Christ. He's a servant of the gospel. But all of this is in keeping with the grace of God that had been given to him and is in keeping with the working of God's power. Okay, so yes, his ministry involves suffering. But Paul knows exactly what he is doing. And he knows that precisely in that suffering, God's power is being worked out in his life. So don't worry about it, Paul says. And that, I would suggest, is the message of this whole passage in its basic form. But, Of course, there's more to it than that. And there's these two parallel passages where Paul is going to describe in more detail for them what this ministry of, this this service of the gospel looks like for him specifically. What it is that's gotten him into this place of imprisonment and as a result of all of that, why they shouldn't be discouraged by what he's suffering on their account. It's all worth it, he's going to show us. So... I'm going to try and illustrate how these two passages are parallel. And hopefully that will illumine the message that Paul is is writing to to the churches that he's addressed this letter to. So the first thing here in the green is the Greek word oikonomia. And it's very difficult to translate this word consistently. So what I've got it as here is administrative arranging and administrative arrangements. So in the word oikonomia, some of you might have recognized the um, root of the word oikos. So I know that some of you guys are familiar with that word, oikos, household. Okay, the Greco-Roman household is the oikos, and oikonomia has its root in that because what it, in its, essentially its base meaning, has to do with household management. Household management. It has to do with what a household manager would do in a Greco-Roman household at that time. It has to do with the kind of ordering and arranging that somebody in that role would have done to kind of keep the household running, you know, running smoothly, running well, accomplishing its, its purposes, its goals. And so the word oikonomia can have both the connotations of that role itself, the role of the household manager, who the household manager was, but also the activity that that household manager undertook. So the arrangements that that person would make, okay, the ordering that that person would bring about. And both of those nuances Paul uses here in the letter as he uses this one word. And that's why it's so difficult to translate it consistently, because in some places he's emphasizing the role itself. In other places, he's emphasizing the stuff that the person in that role will do, So sometimes this is translated as stewardship, right? A household manager or a steward. And in that sense, it it communicates to us the role itself, okay? The role of the steward, the stewardship of the steward. But also it can have to do with the ordering and the arranging, the administrating that a steward would do. And so for Paul, Paul's role of a kind of household manager of administrating and arranging different aspects of God's master plan is conveyed here as well as the details and the arrangements of that master plan itself. So that's what's going on with the word oikonomia. The next thing that makes these two passages parallel is um, this theme of the grace of God which had been given to Paul and three times he actually talks about this. So it's very clear to us that what Paul is suffering is a gift. Okay, it's, it's this grace that God had given him. And then he brings up this really, really, really important theme in the, in the letter with the word the mystery, okay? The mystery, the mysterion. And mystery in this context is, is not something that can't be known, of course, but something that was hidden and has now been made known. And for Paul here, that mystery is, has to do with the entire plan of God for the cosmos, okay, for the universe, in all its fullness, as well as different aspects of that master plan. So both of these passages talk about this oikonomia, they talk about the grace of God given to Paul, they talk about the mystery, and the presence of oikonomia and mysterion should point us back to Paul's thesis for the whole letter in chapter 1. So I think that Paul essentially gives us that thesis statement in 1, 9 through 10. And here's what it it says there, okay? He, God, made known to us the mystery of his will in keeping with his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ, pertaining to the administrative arrangements, the oikonomia, for when the time was fully right, specifically to unite all things, Dave referenced this word as well in his sermon. Ana thy to sum up, ana up, kephale, head, to sum up all things in Christ, to head up all things in Christ, to bring union to all things in and under Christ. That, specifically, was God's master plan for all things. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. So that, in its most sweeping form, is, God, is the mystery of God's will, okay, which had been revealed to Paul. And this, this mysterious will of God, in this mysterious will of God, he had made arrangements. He had, he had arranged things for when the time was fully right, when the time was just right for Jesus to come. God had planned what he would accomplish through the life, the ministry, the death, and resurrection of of Jesus. And so it's these arrangements, okay, these, these orderly arrangements that Paul now has been given some responsibility for. Paul has been tasked with with overseeing some of this stuff, with overseeing some of these arrangements that God had planned from time immemorial. Okay, so God's the mystery of God's will was to unite all things in and under Christ, to draw all things into Christ and under His headship, thereby bringing unity to them all. That's bigger than Jew and Gentile. But for Paul, the role that he had specifically within this master plan of God had to do with the union of Jew and Gentile. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and he'd been tasked with seeing the union of those two bodies in Christ. That's the part of God's master plan. That's the part of these orderly arrangements that Paul had given some responsibility for okay? by God's grace and that's what brings us back (coughs) to our passage. So let's read it now. This is 3, 1 through 6. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the oikonomia, the, the role of administrative arranging of the grace of God given to me for you, namely that the mystery was made known to me by revelation, just as I have briefly written already. And I think he's referencing chapter one there. When you read this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. <clears throat> Which, in other generations, was not made known to human beings, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Specifically, that the Gentiles would be co-heirs, co-body members, and co-sharers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is Paul's first description of the oikonomia, of the responsibility, the role of administratively arranging things, which was part of the grace that God had given him in his ministry. God had made the mystery of his master plan for all things known to Paul along with the apostles and prophets of Paul's day. And as far as Paul's role was concerned, okay, it had specifically to do with the incorporation of the Gentiles within God's larger plan to unite all things in Christ. And so this, of course, is where Paul echoes what he had written in chapter 2. right? And what I just want to emphasize quickly is, is the strong emphasis on unity that we see in Paul's language here. So back in chapter 2, Paul described what it was like to be a Gentile before Christ. Okay, they were apart from a Messiah or separate from Christ. They were excluded from the Politeia, the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They, were, they had no hope and were without God in the world. But now, he said in 219, now they were co-citizens, sum politei. those who were uh, um, excluded from this Politeia were now sum politei with the saints in Christ. Those who had been strangers to the covenants of promise were no longer strangers and aliens in Christ. And those who had no hope and who were without God in the world were now God's household members. And so now Paul is going to kind of repeat some of these themes again. You know, those who are apart from Christ, they're co-body members, co-bodied in Christ. They, those who were strangers to the covenants of promise are now co-sharers of the promise. Those who had no hope are now co-heirs. And so we, we, we often translate this as, you know, fellow members, fellow sharers, fellow heirs. But what Paul has done is he's taken this prefix with soon and he's tacked it on to all those words to emphasize it in the strongest way he possibly can the withness of Jews and Gentiles. Now, the witness that the Gentiles have in Christ, the just complete and intimate unity that God has brought about to these people who were formerly alienated. And that's what Paul's on about. That's Paul's main ministry. That's his main task, is to proclaim that the Gentiles are now to be co-body members, co-sharers, co-heirs. Okay? And so <clears throat> accomplishing that unity, that was the outcome of the working of God's power through Christ's death and resurrection. We read, we read about that in chapter 2, how in one body God has reconciled these two peoples to each other and to himself. <clears throat> Paul's preaching made God's master plan known, and by doing that, by proclaiming these things, Paul actually participated in bringing it into being. Paul actually participated in in this unity coming about between Jew and Gentile. And so we've gotten kind of used to the idea of Jew and Gentile being together in the church, but we've got to remember how huge that was for Paul in his day, how impossible it seemed that that could ever happen. Okay, Jesus had changed everything in what he had accomplished on the cross. Through his death and resurrection, he had brought about what no one else would have been able to do. Okay, it's critical to see how huge that is for Paul and then it's critical to reflect on its implications for us today in this time and place. For Paul, okay, a Jew who is in Christ has more in common with a Gentile who is in Christ than with a fellow Jew who is not in Christ. For Paul, a Jew who is in Christ has more in common with the Gentile who is in Christ than with a fellow Jew who is not in Christ. An American who is in Christ has more in common with a Russian or with a Chinese citizen who is in Christ than with a fellow American who is not in Christ." A man who is in Christ has more in common with a woman who is in Christ than with fellow men who are not in Christ. A citizen who is in Christ has more in common with an immigrant who is in Christ than a fellow citizen who is not in Christ. A Democrat who is in Christ has more in common with a Republican who is in Christ than with a Democrat who is not in Christ, a white person who is in Christ has more in common with a black person who is in Christ than a white person who has not in, who is not in Christ. Is this how we look at the world? Is this fundamental reality that God has brought about in Christ what we live out of? Because if it's not, then we're living out of touch with the gospel. We're living out of touch with God's master plan for all things, things in heaven and things on the earth. We're living out of touch with the act of Christ on the cross. We're living out of touch with Paul's suffering service in prison. The magnitude of what God has accomplished in bringing unity to all things is something we have got to grasp and we have got to learn to live out of. (laughs) For Paul, his work to make this mystery known to all people which got him imprisoned was participation in God's master plan to bring unity to all things. This thing that had been hidden in God and veiled from other, gera- from other generations. It was in keeping with God's power which raised Christ from the dead. And for Paul, that was worth suffering for. That was worth being imprisoned. And so, he tells the Gentiles, don't worry about my tribulations on your behalf. (laughs) Well, that in itself would be reason enough for this encouragement, I think. That in itself would be reason enough for this request that Paul has made. But it's actually even bigger than that, as Paul is gonna go on to show us in this parallel passage. So he's talked about how these arrangements that God had made, how the mystery of God's will, this mystery of God's master plan had been made known to people, but what Paul is participating in is cosmic in scope. It's not only human beings that this mystery is being revealed to, through what Paul is participating in, but the very principalities in powers. So that's what brings us to this next passage. Paul had talked about how the Gentiles would be co-heirs, co-body members, co-sharers of the promise in Christ through the gospel, of which he'd become a servant in keeping with the grace of God given to him, which was in keeping with the working of God's power. And so he says, he continues now, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, parallel number 1 to gospelize the gentiles this is often translated as preach but it's euangelizo it's to gospelize the gentiles the incomprehensible riches of Christ and to illumine for all people what are these administrative arrangements, what, what are these this oikonomia that these these arrangements that god had made from time immemorial pertaining to the mystery of his will, which was hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So this gospelizing was in order that the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to human beings. No. To the holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. No. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And the critical qualifying comment here, through the church... This is in keeping with the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through his faithfulness. So Paul is gospelizing the Gentiles with this message about the arrangements made in the mystery of God's will hidden for ages. And he actually participates in bringing those arrangements about of seeing the Gentiles drawn into the people of God in Christ. Okay, the result of that work, of Paul's gospel work, the result of these arrangements that Paul had been tasked with, of this arranging that Paul had been tasked with, was this new thing called the church. And the church is the object lesson that God has set before the principalities and the powers to show them what his master plan for all things, them included, is. It's through the church that these things are made known. In um, in 2010 I attended the Wheaton Theology Conference, the subject of which was the work of N.T. Wright. And he made this statement there that has stuck with me since then. The whole talk has stuck with me, but, but this clip in particular.
2: Or consider the letter to the Ephesians, me. which I preached about yesterday here in chapel. Um, the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, is the direct outflowing of that exposition of justification in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And the direct result of that in chapter 3 is precisely that through the church, this extraordinary, multicolored, many splendid many-ethnic, many-language people, that through the one family we call the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It is the fact of a new family that tells Caesar that he doesn't run the world and that Jesus Christ does instead. And as long as we continue to collude with stuff which no Paulinist ought ever to collude with, i.e. fragmentation, fissiparousness, disunity, and who cares because we're right and they're wrong, and all of that. As long as we go that route, the powers can fold their arms and watch us having our little fun because they're still running the show. But when there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism then something new has happened and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Ephesians 4. I
1: love that. The principalities and the powers that are hostile to God, that are hostile to the work that God is doing in the world in keeping with this master plan for all things, those hostile principalities and powers are set on fracturing and alienating humanity and all creation. <coughs> The unity among believers that God is bringing about in Christ is cosmic in its implications. It confronts the principalities and powers with the victory of God in Christ and with God's master plan for all things. Under no circumstances should we allow the squawking pundits and the inflammatory posts on social media and the condescending interviews on the radio turn our eyes aside from what God is doing in the world, bringing unity to all things. Under no circumstances should we allow ourselves to be distracted by those alienating forces from what God is on about in this world in Jesus Christ from what we are about as the global, universal body of Christ. If we do, as Wright says, the powers can just sit back, fold their arms, and chill out. Because they're still running the show. <clears throat> on the other hand, on the other hand, when we live out of the reality of what God has done among us, when we live out of the unity of Jew and Gentile, of male and female, of black and white, of Russian, Chinese, American, citizen, and immigrant, when we live out of those realities, God points to us, and he looks at the principalities and powers, and he says, how do you like them apples? What an awesome privilege to be a part of that. What an awesome responsibility to participate in that. Right? Participating in something so glorious is worth the suffering it may involve. And so, Paul says, don't be discouraged by my tribulations on your behalf, which are for your glory. Indeed. Let me pray. For this reason, let us bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen us with power through his Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, And let us pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.